Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. In 2019, we spent an entire year walking through Exodus, and in the next few weeks, we'll start a new book of the Bible. Uh, But the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at Jesus' commission that He gave to His disciples, what we call today the Great Commission. He, before He went to heaven, told His disciples to go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that the Lord Jesus commanded and that Jesus would be with them to the end of the age. This is the disciples' marching orders, and it's also the marching orders for every believer in Jesus who has repented and believed in Him. In the last two weeks, we've looked at two different reasons why we often do not obey Jesus' command to make disciples. One is our focus on ourselves, and one is our reliance and dependence on ourselves. Self-focus makes us too busy with our own plans, our own agendas, too busy to notice and show compassion to those in our community and those in our lives who are lost and in need. Our self-reliance leads us to trust in our plans, not God's to trust in our knowledge, to trust in our experience far too much, to take a risk, depend on God, and get into a conversation about Jesus. This focus on self and and, and and trust in ourselves hinders us. It handicaps us from leaning on God and obeying His call on our lives. This morning we consider a similar theme of following Jesus' commands. During Jesus' ministry, if you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you would find that Jesus is constantly modeling and also calling His disciples to show mercy to the vulnerable, to the downtrodden, to the weak, to the sick, and to the poor in society. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. And being made in God's image gives all people, even the least of these, inherent value and dignity. Image bearers of every age, every gender, every race, and every social class deserve justice because they are made in the image of God. And yet, in our fallen world, where mankind has rebelled against God, we have also turned against one another. So that people are regularly used by others. Used as a means to an end, not treated as valuable. People are regularly considered a burden or an inconvenience. People are often looked at as lesser than based on who they are, how old they are, what they look like, and what their situation in life is. We live in a day where babies on the womb are slaughtered in the name of convenience. 
We live in a day where the elderly are treated as a burden and ignored far too often. We live in a day where different races and different genders are looked down upon because of biology and skin pigment that they had nothing to do with. The sick are often avoided. Lonely people are neglected and the poor are overlooked in our day. And friends, King Jesus cares about all of these. And our Christianity is not real if we don't. And I want to show you that this morning from Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Jesus has sent out 72 of His disciples and empowered them for the work of ministry. And now they're returning. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is, except the Father, or who the Father is, except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The first thing we see in our passage this morning is a sight that saves versus spiritual blindness. We see a sight that saves that's contrasted with spiritual blindness. Jesus has just sent out 72 followers to do ministry. They've returned rejoicing at what they've been empowered to do. Many who had heard their message had responded to it in faith, but many were unmoved by that message. Many were unrepentant when they heard the message that Jesus had sent His disciples to go and speak. And in verses 21-24, through Jesus praises His Father God, thanking Him for hiding the truth from the wise and understanding. Jesus says, no one knows the Father, no one knows the Son, except those the Son chooses to reveal it to. Many are spiritually blind, and Jesus praises the Father 
and says, that was your will. Those who are spiritually blind, who don't respond to the message of the gospel, are described in the text as those who are wise and understanding. But Jesus says this truth has been revealed to little children. He says to His disciples that they are blessed with spiritual sight to be able to see the truth of Jesus' identity and the gospel that can truly save. So what Jesus is saying here is that salvation is gaining spiritual sight. And that spiritual sight is revealed to little children, but it is hidden from the spiritually blind who are wise and understanding in the eyes of the world. What that means is that worldly wisdom and your reputation in the world cannot save. Worldly understanding, worldly common sense cannot save. Being impressive and successful in the eyes of the world cannot save money and possessions and influence. Things that we are applauded for when we garner them and gain them in this life cannot save. In fact, according to Jesus, all of those things can be spiritually dangerous. Because if you are impressive in the eyes of the world, if you're impressed by your own resume, by your accomplishments, by your knowledge and your strength, if you're impressed by those things, if you're someone who thinks that you have all the answers, if you trust your knowledge and opinions and your brain, if you've built an impressive little kingdom for yourself, then you will probably think that you don't need a Savior. If you are a self Savior who thinks you've got it all figured out and you only depend on and rely on yourself and you scoff at the eternal wisdom of God and the message of an upside down kingdom where the weak are made strong, where the last are actually first and where service and sacrifice are superior to being served. If that is you, you will scoff at this message. It won't make any sense. But he says the truth is revealed and is beautiful to little children. I think that he he could here be talking specifically about little children, but I think he's using little children as an example of a type of person. The sight that we need to be given to be saved to see and savor the beauty of Christ and who He is and what He's done will be appreciated and accepted by those who are humble, by those who are meek, by those who are vulnerable, by those who are weak. Only those who are willing to come to an end of themselves and their little kingdom. Only those who are willing to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus in humility and say, You are King, I am not. Only those who are willing to sacrifice it all for God and for others will see and savor and hear and heed the message of the kingdom. Jesus shows us here in this prayer to His Father, there is a sight that saves from spiritual bondage. 
and he praises his father for revealing this truth to humble, dependent, vulnerable children and hiding it from the wise and understanding who do not see their need of it. And we're introduced to one of these wise and understanding people who are missing it in verses 25 through 29. Look with me at those verses. It goes on and says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the scribe answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the scribe, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? We see here our second point, our second truth. We see self-justifying neglect versus Christ-like compassion. Self-justifying neglect versus Christ-like compassion. Jesus is confronted by a lawyer. A lawyer here is referring to a scribe, someone who would have committed their life to studying the Old Testament law. They would have known the Hebrew Old Testament like the back of their hand. And this Jewish lawyer has come to Jesus to vet him out, to test his theology, to try to catch him in his words. So he asked Jesus, how can eternal life be attained? Jesus says, what's the Old Testament say? The scribe quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. And he says, what the law says is love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. This man knows the Bible well. He can even summarize the big idea of the Bible well. He does it in such a way that is impressive to Jesus. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Now go do it. Now do this and live. In essence, Jesus' response is, listen, it's obvious you've been to Sunday school. It's obviously that you've been sitting in discipleship classes. Now go do what you know up here. You know it in your head. Now go live a life that reflects it. The lawyer doesn't like this answer. Why? Because he doesn't get an A plus on his theology exam. He's told instead, that's the first step. Now obey it. Now do it. He doesn't like the answer. He's not satisfied because Jesus' answer to him is a challenge. Jesus' answer to him leads to conviction. 
Because every one of us in this room know that it's easier to know answers to Bible questions than it is to obey and live out what the Bible commands. So Luke, the author of this gospel, tells us that the scribe decides he'll ask a follow-up question to justify himself. This man, this scribe, would have been one who stayed away from many people. As a Jew, he would have avoided Gentile pagans who worshipped other gods, Gentiles with different bloodlines of different races. As a Jew, he would have stayed away from known sinners such as tax collectors and prostitutes. He, as a scribe, he was one who wouldn't have really had time for little children. He wouldn't have treated women with the same respect that he gave to a man. Many of these religious leaders we find out in the Gospels even would use their religious convictions to justify not taking care of those of their parents who they were called on to take care of in the Bible. But this Jesus who he's asking this question of has been ministering to Jews and Gentiles, to the old and young, to men and women, to the religious and to the rebel. So the lawyer recognizes that the way that he would describe a neighbor who he's called to love very narrowly is probably different from the way that Jesus describes who your neighbor is. So he asks, Who then is my neighbor? Who am I responsible to love as a neighbor, Jesus? Jesus hears his question, knows his heart, knows his motives, and gives us the famous parable of the Good Samaritan found in verses 30 through 37. Read it with me. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Then Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to the lawyer, You go and do likewise. Jesus tells a story to answer this man's question. Man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked, robbed, left for dead. And three different men travel along after him and see him lying there half dead. The first is a priest. 
A man called to serve in the temple of God. A man called to teach the law of God to the people of Israel. A man called to offer sacrifices to God to atone for sin. A man called by God to dwell in the presence of God in the temple. This spiritual leader, this priest sees his fellow Jew in desperation. He sees that injustice has been committed against him. He sees that he's lying there, barely hanging on and half dead. And he passes to the other side of the road and goes on his way in order to get back to his religious duties. Along comes a second man, this time a Levite, but not one who is a priest. He comes by sees his fellow Jew lying half dead, just as the priest had formerly. He too passes by on the other side of the road and goes on his way. Two Jewish men, two men who knew the laws of God, two men who claim to love God supremely with their hearts, both see a need, Both move away from the need. Along comes a third man. This time, not a Jewish man, not a priest, not someone from the tribe of Levi. Instead, a Samaritan. It's important here to briefly mention who the Samaritans were. Samaritans and Jews hated one another. With a hate that was greater than any hatred that we've seen in our lifetimes, in our country, between two different types of people. They hated each other. Back in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, Israel had split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And the southern kingdom continued to worship God the right way at the temple. They continued to follow and obey God's laws. They continued to do what God had called them to do. But this northern kingdom, they went up, they were called Israel now. They created their own religion. They built their own temple. They worshipped their own gods. And they spit in the face of the Lord who had saved them and had called them to obedience and to following them. This northern kingdom's capital was Samaria, which is where we get the name Samaritans. And this northern kingdom of Samaria, also called Israel, was eventually wiped out in 722 B.C. by the powerful empire, the Assyrians. They came in and they killed most in the northern kingdom, but those who were left were taken into exile into Assyria. And then over the next 700 years, these exiles eventually went from being under Assyrian rule to Babylonian rule to Persian rule to Greek rule to Roman rule. And what had happened is over 700 years, these Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles, had consistently worshipped false gods, and they were considered by Jews to be a bunch of unclean, pagan, blasphemous, good-for-nothings. 
Jesus is a Jew who knows that history. Jesus is a Jew just like the lawyer asking this question and just like the Jewish crowd who is listening into it. And he has the audacity in that setting with that history to introduce a Samaritan into his story. The religious Jew, the priest, the Levite have not shown compassion, have been too busy to meet the need of their fellow Jew. But along comes a Samaritan. And unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, this good-for-nothing Samaritan has compassion. He goes near the man who is left for dead, not afraid of being made unclean by getting close and touching him. He binds up his bloody wounds. He picks him up and puts him on his own animal. He takes him somewhere to be healed, and he pays to put him up in an inn under the watch of an innkeeper, promising to return back and make sure that he's okay and recovered and restored to health. This Samaritan, this good-for-nothing Samaritan, sees injustice happening, sees someone in a desperate situation and stops his plans and delays his travel and inconveniences himself and pays his own money and gives his own time to bear the burden of someone he was supposed to hate. The Samaritan is the hero in Jesus' story, which would have shocked the Jewish crowd listening in. And it would have shocked even more the Jewish lawyer who had asked the question, who is my neighbor in the first place? This man was trying to justify himself and the lack of love that he showed to his neighbors as he pursued his religious duties. And Jesus tells this parable and comes out of the story and closes with the convicting, piercing question, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And the scribe is forced to answer that the merciful, good-for-nothing Samaritan loved his neighbor. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Why would the Samaritan overlook his hatred for the Jews and stop to help this man in need? The answer is the same reason that Jesus during His ministry showed compassion to the lost and hurting and poor and vulnerable. It's the same reason Jesus did not ignore and avoid those in need, those living in sin, and those who were unclean. Because they were made in the image of God and had a dignity and a value and they deserved justice and love. Jesus was sent on a mission from His Father to seek and to save the lost and the dirty and the broken and the vulnerable. 
That is why Jesus had come. Because the vulnerable were worth, worthy of His time and His mercy. The weak and the sick and the young were worth His time and His mercy. The tax collector and the prostitute and the Gentile were worth His time and His mercy. The woman and the Samaritan and the poor were worthy of His time and His mercy. They were worthy of His time and His mercy because the great physician came for the sick, not for those who are pretending that they've got it all together and are healthy. He came to seek and to save the lost. Not those who think they have no issues, think they have it all together, think they have all the answers and know it all, think that they're better than everyone else. There are lots of reasons that this priest or this Levite could have given for passing by on the other side of the road and leaving the half-dead man there to die. They probably had other commitments and responsibilities. They probably didn't want to be around blood and become ceremonially unclean. They probably didn't want to stop on this unsafe road for fear that they might too be robbed and left for dead. They might not have been been wanting to be seen by such a messy situation. They would have had many reasons to explain away why they were justified to not love their neighbor. And the Samaritan man who did stop would have had lots of reasons to not stop. He was on a journey. He was busy. People were waiting on him. This was a hated Jew. Someone who probably wouldn't have stopped for him. It was unsafe. It was inconvenient. It would have cost money. It would have cost time. But the Samaritan stopped. And he showed mercy on the desperate need of one who had faced evil and injustice. And in so doing... The Samaritan reflects what our Savior Jesus does for us. The religious with their right theology and their right pedigree lacked mercy and compassion. They knew the right answers, but they did not live it out. But the low-down, no-good Samaritan acted like Jesus. Friends, I hope that you realize when you consider this parable that we are not supposed to first and foremost try to identify with either the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan and answer the question, which of these three am I the most like? Instead, you and I should first identify with the man laying half dead on the side of the road with our only hope being the mercy of a passerby. Because in our sin, we are spiritually dead and without hope. 
Our enemies of sin and hell and death and Satan are too mighty for us to overcome. But in grace and mercy, our God, the very God whom we have rebelled against, the very God whom we have hated, has loved us enough to send His Son, Jesus, to come and be our Good Samaritan. Jesus did not pass us by. He did not ignore our need, but He drew near to us and bound up our wounds. Jesus came and brought spiritual healing. He paid for our spiritual debt and He broke our spiritual bondage, not by giving up a little time and paying some money to put us in the inn, but instead He does this for us by being beaten and mocked and crucified on the cross of Calvary in our place. He does it by paying our penalty, bearing the judgment of a holy God that we deserve in our place in order to bring us peace and healing and restoration and a future and a hope and joy. He displays for us that He is the ultimate Samaritan who sacrifices to save us. Friends, when you are spiritually dead, and spiritually blind, without a hope, without a Savior. And then someone comes along and does that for you. When you are left for dead on the side of the road, thinking this is the end, and someone stops and picks you up and heals you and inconveniences themselves and sacrifices for you. When they do that for you, it changes you. It transforms you. It gives you a new identity and a new perspective. When that is your story, it will empower you to do the same thing. Showing undeserved mercy and kindness to the needy and vulnerable in your life. It leads to us fighting for justice for the helpless. It leads to a life of mercy and sacrifice. Friends, this sermon is not a call to become a social justice warrior. This is not a call to start ranting off your opinions about political issues. This is not a call to pretend that helping others and sometimes even being taken advantage of in doing so, is easy. This is not a call to forget the truth that people do reap what they sow and personal responsibility always will matter. This is not even merely a challenge to rethink what you do when you see someone standing on the side of the road with a sign. Instead, this is a call to justice and mercy. It's a call to move towards need, not away from it. It's a call to go to the mission field, not stand away and mock how stupid these people are for not being like me. This is a call to not be someone who knows lots and obeys little. 
It's a call to not be so busy doing religious things that we are blind to the needs that God has put in our path. It's a call to wisely and winsomely and sacrificially make sacrifices like Jesus in day-to-day life. It's a call to lay aside prejudices and not treat people as lower than you for stupid reasons like race or gender. It's a call to fight for the lives of the unborn, to value the vulnerable, to show honor to the elderly, and to treat all people who are made in God's image with dignity and respect and fight for their justice. In short, it's a call to not just say that we are Christ's people, but to be Christ's people. We are saved by our faith in our Good Samaritan's finished work for us in His life, death, and resurrection. We are not saved by good works, by religious duties. We are not saved by meeting the needs of others. We're not saved by giving to charitable causes. We're not saved by doing these things. But when you have been dead on the side of the road and have been brought back to life by the good Samaritan Jesus, it is going to change the choices you make. It is going to change the actions that you perform. The proof that our salvation is real is not in what we say and not in what we sing. It's not in what we pray or the religious games that we play. The proof that our salvation is real is in our actions and our choices and our lifestyle of sacrifice and mercy and love to the vulnerable. So we must be a people whose lives are marked by Christ-like compassion, not excuse-making, self-justifying neglect. And friends, when our life is marked by that Christ-like compassion, it is evidence that we have been given the spiritual sight that saves and are no longer spiritually blind. We must look to Christ, trust in Christ, be like Christ, our Samaritan sacrifice. As we close this morning, I want to urge you to join me in singing this last song and making it a prayer, praying that God will not pass us by. Praying that God will give us spiritual eyes to see our community the way Christ does. Join me in praying that God will not pass us by, but instead will meet us where we are and break our hearts with compassion for the lost and hurting who are made in God's image and are valuable. And that we are called to be Jesus too. Let us close. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You for Your mercy. We thank You for Your grace. God, we are a busy people. 
We are a people who have schedules and responsibilities and jobs. We have families. We have chores and hobbies and all sorts of things going on in our lives that take time and energy. So often we are exhausted. And yet, God, you call us to lay our lives down for others. You call us to do it wisely and winsomely. You call us to have lives marked with mercy and pursuing of justice. And God, I pray that you will open our eyes to see our world the way you do. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to go to the need we see around us instead of ignoring it. And help us to do this, God, not in order to try to earn your favor, but because we are constantly beholding who you are and remembering what you have done for us in Jesus. God, make us a missional, compassionate people. Make us a people who are pursuing mercy and justice, not just in how we vote, but in how we live. God, we pray that we will know You lots and obey You. And Lord, we pray that if anyone here this morning sees that they are like the man on the side of the road, in desperate need of a Savior. And they've never repented and believed. God, help them to know the Samaritan of Jesus has come. He is good. He is gracious. He loves and He sacrifices. God, if anyone here doesn't know You, I pray that You will lead them to respond in repentance and faith. God, help us to sing this and to make it a prayer as we close. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.